0: 5 Reasons Why You're Not a Better Wildlife Photographer. This is the Wild Eye Podcast. Hey everybody, my name is Jerry, I'm from Wild Eye, and there are reasons why we don't grow as photographers, and often it's not a very difficult thing to change. So last night I was on a Zoom with Patrick, Patrick if you're listening, hey big shout out. And we spoke about selecting images and how to choose the best image from a sequence and stuff like that. And it got me thinking. And when I got to the office this morning, then I spoke to Johan, Al, Jono and Andrew, the guys in the office. And I asked them the question, what is the one thing if you were to look at the entire digital photographic process from start to finish, right? Picking up your camera all the way to exporting a file. Where do people fall flat? Where are people holding themselves back? Where are the the levers you can pull in order to be better. So, in no particular order, I'm going to run through what the guys gave me and just share some thoughts on the back of it. So, five reasons why you're not a better wildlife photographer. Number one, and this is from Johan, he said, cataloging, knowing where your raw files live. Now, this is, at base level, probably one of the biggest problems that I see, is people import into Lightroom, and then they think the files live in Lightroom. The files do not live in Lightroom. Lightroom just accesses them from where they are copied or moved onto your drives. So there's various ways to do this. You can use Lightroom to import. You can import with Finder or with Windows Explorer and then import them into Lightroom from there. You can have external drives, whatever the case is. But if you do not know immediately where your files live, you have a problem because people will delete things because they think it's in Lightroom, then they delete the files. That's holding you back from being a better photographer is not knowing where your raw material is, is kind of a big deal, yeah? It's kind of a big deal. So I've spent a lot of time on um, Zooms, on team viewers, on trips, doing this with people and breaking it down so that they understand where the raw files live, that you can access it not only with Lightroom, but with other programs as well. So the first item on our list of why you're not a better wildlife photographer is cataloging. You need to know where your files live. Right, number two, and this is from Al, is understanding the base settings and just basically understanding your camera. So what he said is, when you get to a sighting, you pick up, can you adjust your base settings very quickly? Now, if you've been with me on a trip, you'd know, I normally, in the mornings, I'll say to you, what is your standby settings? Which means you can just pick up and start shooting. But That would maybe just give you a proof or a document shot. If you know my continuum of wildlife photography, you'll know what that means. If not, send me a mail, right? You should be able to pick up, look at the scene and immediately think, okay, I need more aperture, less aperture, more ISO, less ISO, whatever the case is, underexposed, overexposed. If you do not know those base settings and what buttons you need to press on your camera, you're not going to be a better wildlife photographer anytime soon. You're holding yourself back right? I've said this in many podcasts, and I think blog posts in the past as well, is if you still have to ask all the time, what should my ISO be? What should my shutter speed be? What should my aperture be? What is exposure compensation? If you're asking those questions, 4, five, six, 11, 27 safaris deep, you're not learning, and you're holding yourself back. Obviously, if you're a new photographer, yes, let's walk that road, let's get it done. But at some stage, you got to start trusting yourself and knowing what the answer to those questions are. Because if you do not understand the base settings for a given scene, just ballpark at least, or what the buttons on your camera do, you're not going to be a better wildlife photographer. Right, Johan then came back and he had another one, and he said, understanding the scene and subject and what you want from it. Now, this links to what I'm going to say at the end of this, but and Andrew also mentioned it, but is looking at a scene, it could be a line under a tree with side lighting, it could be a family of elephants drinking, it could be a leopard up a tree with a spotlight. It's looking at a scene and understanding what is possible photographically and what is not. So, being able to look at the scene and judge, okay, cool, a wide shot's not going to work here for X, Y, and Z reasons, or a telephoto shot might not be the best option because the sky is great. Now, yes, this definitely does come with experience. And also, if you've traveled with myself in the wild, I guide, you'll know that we call these things for you. Look wider, include this, pull back, zoom in. Right? I know there's a lot of photographic guides who shoot for themselves and they do not do that. Sorry, Patrick, I'm just picking up on a conversation that we had. Moving on. Um, but it's, it's that thing of looking at a scene and knowing I need to underexpose this, whatever I'm going to do. Or I need to shoot wide because the environment lends itself to it. There are ways that if you don't get to the bush enough that you can work around it. And that's something that I do for private trips. When someone has very specific photographic expectations and desired outcomes from their, their safari, I would say, okay, cool. We're going to go and look, for example, at polar bears. Look at these videos. Go and look at images. See images of them, close-ups, far away. Teach your photographic voice. Inspire your photographic voice to know what to look for when you get into the field. I think it's something that, and, and, and I've seen this, people who have done it, they excel and the images show that. But for a lot of people, it feels like homework and just too much work and, ah, oh, fine, I'll just do it in the, in, in, when I get to the field. That's fine. But if you want to be a better wildlife photographer, you need to give yourself the opportunity and the, the skill sets to do that. So understanding scenes and subjects, vital. But I'm going to pick up on this again later on. Andrew said when I asked him the same question, he said, overshooting and choosing the right moments. Now, this is exactly what, what I had uh, the conversation with Patrick last night. So, overshooting in, there's a time and a place to shoot in short burst br- br- versus a long burst versus one or two images. There's a time for that. If you are overshooting all the time, right, and you see this, it's a very, very common thing. There'd be a lion that's half asleep. You get there and people just rattle off 47 frames. Brrr, and then they want to choose one in lightroom. You're not learning anything. You're not getting better as a wildlife photographer. In fact, you're getting lazy, right? You, my, I can give my mom a camera and say to her, just rattle off bursts. Now, she loves it to bits, but she's not a great photographer. And she'll admit this. But if she just rattles off thousands and thousands of frames and then chooses images afterwards that she likes, she could pass as an acceptable photographer. So, Overshooting is something that we need to pay attention to. If you want to be a better wildlife photographer, start looking at how much you are overshooting. Because if you're just rattling off frames, it means that statistically, somewhere in there, you're going to get a good shot. But the fewer bursts you do around sightings that warrant that kind of shooting, the better wildlife photographer you're going to be. You're going to sharpen your skills. You're going to know what to look for. You're going to be more invested in the process. So I love what Andrew had to say there, overshooting and choosing the right moments. And then Johnna mentioned light and exposure. So understanding light is the base level of photography, right? But a level deeper than that, what he said is understanding exposure, when to overexpose and when to underexpose. Because if you do not understand when the camera is going to make something darker or when it's going to make something lighter, you have a problem. You're never gonna be a better photographer because sometimes you have to exposure compensate technically in order to get the correct exposure. Other times you might wanna exposure compensate from a creative point of view. Like if it's a very dark so underexposed work on the room lighting to create mood, whatever the case is. So if you don't understand exposure, then that's a challenge. You're never gonna be a better photographer. So let me quickly I'm gonna just do this now. I'm just thinking about this. The idea of explaining to someone how exposure works in a camera. Let me give this a bash. If you've been on Safari with me you'd have heard this. I've drawn this on many safari floors with a stick in the dust. but imagine this for me, right? You have your sensor so it's a rectangle. In each corner, draw a little half circle or a quarter circle and then draw a big circle in the middle. This is this is I'm taking back to basics. Now, each of those circles is like a little committee of people, right? So there's five committees, one in each corner and one in the middle, and they kind of cover the entire frame. Just work with me here. So what happens is those committees want the image exposed in their area that they're covering to be 18% gray, which is basically, it's a mid-gray, it's like a lightish gray, but from an exposure point of view, it's if you look at the palm of your hand, in any type of light, that would be neutral exposure. Anything darker than that would be under, anything over would be overexposure. Yeah? So now I take a picture. Imagine for me, if you will, it's a landscape and it's a sunset, right? It's a sunset. So I compose where the rule of thirds, the bottom line underneath that of my rule, it's pitch black because it's foreground, and the top two thirds of the image is this bright orange sky. Forget, let's keep it at that. Now, The bottom two committees in the bottom left and bottom right hand corner is going to see this pitch darkness, yeah? And they're going to think, oh shit, this is darker than middle gray or 18% gray. We need to overexpose this image. That's their call. The other three committees, the middle and the top two, top left and top right, they're going to think, hmm, this is brighter, this is brighter than 18% gray we need to underexpose. So now, three committees versus two committees, three will win. And then the entire frame is underexposed a little bit for the camera to try and get it closer to 18% gray. Keeping up, does this make sense? Obviously, there's metering modes and so on and so forth, but this is the base foundation of it. So that's what you need to understand. It's very, very easy to show this on an iPhone. If you point your iPhone at the sky and you give it 50% sky, 50% foreground, right? The camera is trying to balance the bright and the dark you now just click on the sky and you'll see the sky becomes light or becomes darker so you can see it better, but the foreground also gets darker to the point where it's black and there's no detail. On the flip side, same scene, if I click on the foreground on my iPhone, it'll make that lighter so I can see it, but the sky will also go lighter and it'll blow out. That, in a nutshell, is exposure compensation. If you need me to go deeper, come on a trip or Uh, get in touch, we can talk through it. But that, if you don't understand how your camera sees this and how you can control exposure compensation, and normally when you're doing exposure compensation, you're fighting the camera, you're going in the opposite direction because you want to keep something the same. Obviously, yes, I know, exposure modes and metering modes will make a difference, but that's the foundation of it. So for those of you that are wondering, if you go to spot metering, for example, the middle committee gets 80% of the vote, and the rest of the guys in the corners, they only get 20% shared. So whatever happens, the middle committee will decide whether the camera wants to over or underexpose. You then have to decide, do you go with the camera or normally do you fight it in exposure process? You can listen to all that again if it's not clear, otherwise get in touch, come on a trip, we'll do it in detail. Right, so... There, I went off on a tangent. Let's bring it back. So, the five reasons why you're not growing as a photographer. Number one, your catalog is a mess. You don't know where your raw files live. Vital. Number two, understanding base settings for given scenes and understanding what the different buttons on your camera does. Number three, understanding the scene and the subject when you look at it and knowing what you could potentially, even just ballpark, get out of that scene. Number four, overshooting. Overshooting is holding you back, I promise you that. There's even instances at river crossings, for example, where you don't have to just fire off 179 frames back to back, but do short bursts around the action. And then number five is understanding exposure and exposure compensation and light. Now, the reason I thought of this episode and to put this together was based on my conversation last night. And the one thing, and I said this to Patrick, is that I see most often go wrong on safari is people would, and we normally do Lightroom at some stage during the trip, and people would sit, let's say, for example, at the Mara Camp, around the media tent table, everybody's working, they're having a gin and tonic, they're editing, we're floating around, we're helping out, and then you'll go around and someone will be processing an image because they want to get something onto social or send it to their family at home, right? And then you say to them, listen, this is very cool, but let's just look at the before and after frames, before and after the one you've chosen. And so often, people choose the wrong image to process and to present, either for print or for social, right? The base for this, from a wildlife point of view, is based on wildlife photography and the understanding of animal behavior. That's the reason I did the Secret Life of Animals presentation in Chicago last year. You can also find that on b Go and search YouTube for Secret Life of Animals, my name and B&H, and and you will find the presentation on there, is which image shows in the best way, the animal's particular type of movement, the animal's particular type of behavior. Now, that's the foundation. Layer on top of that now your creative mind. What do you want from the image? Do you want to create an image that has tension, just a neutral thing, something happy, something sad? That also affects the decision. And then, obviously, on top of that, you layer composition, both from a two-dimensional 3 rule of thirds point of view, as well as depth, aperture, right? Depth of field. So, the process for me that so many people miss is choosing the right image from a sequence. And that's something that, uh, I know Patrick, you and I are going to work on that, but I might be doing some videos in the future as well. But it is something that on every single trip is which one do you choose. It doesn't have to be wildlife alone. It can be waterfalls in Iceland. It could be the Northern Light. It could be orcas. It could be polar bears and landscapes with mountains and snow. There's something that speaks differently when you look through the images and if you haven't yet, look at survey mode in Lightroom. It's a beautiful way to work and get to that one image. I think I've done image uh, videos like that as well on YouTube, but I will check that out. So one last time, five reasons why you are not a better wildlife photographer. Number one, your catalog's are mesh. You don't know where your RAW files live. Number two, understanding the base settings for different scenes and understanding what the buttons on your camera do. Number three, Understanding the scene and subjects that you look at and what's possible and what you could get from it. Number four, overshooting. Bad. You're holding yourself back. Number five, exposure and understanding. Exposure, compensation, and light. So I hope there's some value for you in there. The problem is that when when you look at the heading or the title of a podcast like this, Why You're Not a Better Photography, the first thing we do is, oh, come on, man, I'm I'm actually growing. I'm getting better. A little bit of self-awareness and looking at your work over the last 10 years, 5 years, 7, 2 years, whatever it is, and deciding, you know what, Yeah, maybe I am in a bit of a rut, maybe I need to up my skill levels on this, this or that. Let me reach out, send me a mail, send Johan and Andrew Al, send anybody a mail, we'd be glad to help. But the first point is that you have to decide that you want to be better. And you have to, someone has to tell you how ugly your baby is. Yeah? Someone has to make you say, listen, John, your Lightroom catalog is a flippin' train wreck. We need to focus on this because you're losing images. Yeah? Overshooting. Just, it's, it's apart from you not stimulating the creative voice at all, you're also taking time that you could actually put the camera down and just experience it. But anyway, let me know what you think. What are the reasons that you're not growing as a photographer? If you want to be open and honest, send me a mail. Let's let's discuss to start of making it right. Anyway, guys, as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for lending me your ear. I look forward to hearing from you. My email, wildeye.com or jerryfinnevolt on all the major uh, social platforms. Always great hearing from you. But for now, I'm going to say bye. I will see you in the next episode. My name is Jerry. I'm from Wild Eye. Bye for now. (laughs)